Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Steve Case, the founder of AOL, CEO and chairman of Revolution, and author of the new book, The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. In 2014, Steve launched Revolution's Rise of the Rest, an initiative to accelerate the growth of startups based outside of Silicon Valley. Rise of the Rest is based on a simple idea. Talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. Today, around 75% of all venture capital in the U.S. goes to just three states, New York, Massachusetts, and California. But that's starting to change. According to Steve, we've already seen peak Silicon Valley and the rest of America is starting to rise. I really enjoyed this conversation with Steve. It definitely left me feeling more optimistic about America's future. I hope you enjoy it too. Steve Case, founder of AOL, CEO and chairman of Revolution, and author of the new book, Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. It is so great to see you again. Great to have you on the show. Welcome. Great to be with you. Well, I'm really excited to have this conversation because I have to say, after reading your book, and by the way, I read your first book as well a few years ago, it made me more optimistic about the future of America. And I I don't know if that was the intent there, but I think uh, this conversation will help get folks more optimistic because we certainly need it these days. And I just want to start um, with the rise of the rest. And you've been on many, many bus tours across the United States, 11,000 miles, 43 cities. And let's kind of start there. And what was the genesis of rise of the rest and and these bus tours that you were going on? Well, it started for me, uh, even though bus tours started eight years ago, this journey uh, around rise of the rest started a little over a decade ago. When I was asked to, to chair an initiative at the White House called Startup America Partnership that got me traveling around the country trying to encourage more regional entrepreneurship that also I was also worked on the President Obama's Jobs and Competitiveness Council. And some of the things I learned there were, were sort of surprising, got my attention. One was the role that new company startups play in terms of job creation. And the second was how venture capital was was really uh, focused on so few places, 75% of venture capital is going to just three states. So, so that kind of woke me up to, huh, if most of the jobs are created by new companies and most of the most successful new companies do raise venture capital, but it's really hard for a lot of people in a lot of parts of the country to raise venture capital, it's kind of a problem, but also could create an opportunity. And then, you know, we did, did some work there on the policy level and then uh, about eight years ago, did hit the road with our first bus tour. We've done, done a bunch of them, dozens and dozens of cities. Uh, and it was remarkable what we were seeing in those cities in terms of how the cities themselves were kind of getting renewed because of what was happening in the in the startup you know, communities in those in those cities. Uh, and then we launched a Rise of the Rest you know, fund that now made 200 investments to 100 different, different cities. And, you know, we're seeing very promising results. And ultimately, after I reflected on all this over the last decade, I said, I got to write this book. I got to tell this story. It's an amazing story. It's a surprising story in terms of the fact that it's really dozens of cities on the rise, not just, you know, a few uh, great entrepreneurs building some amazing you know, companies, but most people don't seem to have any idea what's happening all across the, you know, the country. And to your earlier point, I do think it's an optimistic story. I, I do think anybody reading this book will feel a little bit better about this next chapter for, for America. Yeah. Um, I like so many of the different things you brought up there, Steve, and how it like woke you up. You you recognize this opportunity. Um, you talked about these kind of amazing and surprising stories that, you know, many people don't have a, an idea of what's going on. And I also have to imagine just being on the ground and doing it via a bus versus just flying to city to city really lets you kind of experience um, America from the ground. So as a result of these tours, you raised two funds, $150 million Rise of the Rest seed funds. You have some incredible names backing these. Talk to me about the first time you went to raise the fund. And after you kind of saw and experienced this on the ground, how did you get others to kind of buy into it that, you know, there really is opportunity out here? Well, because we had started with these bus tours and, and they started getting some attention, even 60 Minutes at one point followed us and did a, did a story on it. A lot of people, uh, including people I knew, were were asking about it, saying, kind of interesting what you're, you're doing, kind of interesting this thesis that you could back entrepreneurs in these other places outside of places like Silicon Valley and, and generate, you know, kind of top tier 
returns by while also having sort of a broader positive impact on on those communities and kind of wanted to get involved and sometimes they would join us on a, on a bus tour uh but also i started realizing that it would be good to open this up initially the investments we were making via the bus tours i was just making personally and said well, let's actually create a, a fund so we can make more investments backing more entrepreneurs in more places but also create a vehicle that would allow others who had an interest in kind of joining us on this this uh, effort to to participate and so i did reach out to some of the people who had, had talked to me earlier also some other people i knew that i thought might be might be interested in it and we were able to assemble as you as you as you referenced an amazing group of of uh, some of the most successful uh, entrepreneurs investors executives in in the country like jeff bezos and howard schultz and uh sarah blakely and dan gilbert and you know, venture investors like John Doerr and Jim Breyer and private equity investors like Henry Kravis and David Rubenstein, hedge fund people like uh, like Ray Dalio, you know, and several dozen others. So it really was uh, great to have them also believe that this really made sense, that there was an opportunity from an investment standpoint, a return standpoint, while also having some of these other positive uh, you know, impacts. We did that first fund, then we did a, you know, the second fund. Uh, and you know, but the vault—it's still early because we're obviously we're seed fund investing. But the the our goal of generating top tier returns to prove to people, including venture investors on the coast, that you can generate top tier returns by by investing in the middle of the country. We're on track to do that. Yeah, really, um, a who's who uh, of, of investors, including some folks who were those entrepreneurs who were outside of Silicon Valley themselves. Um, another uh, thing I want to bring up with you is you know, just the results. You mentioned um, some surprising results. Can you share with folks, like, because y'all were doing pitch competitions and you were writing checks. And this this isn't like philanthropy. This is actually, there's like right. a real return here. Um, talk to me about the results. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely not philanthropy because uh, it, we wanted to have a positive impact in terms of essentially dispersing talent, dispersing capital, having a more dispersed innovation economy, therefore having, you know, more job creation happening in more parts of the, the country, not just a few places doing really well. And a lot of people in a lot of places feeling kind of left out and, and left behind. So I think there's a role for philanthropy. There's a role for government, but this particular instance, we said the best thing we can do is, is create a fund that really generates, as I said, you know, top tier returns. And some of the early investments we made have really you know, paid off. I mean, one company, in Detroit, the first city we visited on our first bus tour eight years ago, uh, a company called StockX, we seeded, and now it's gone on to raise you know several hundred million dollars, and you know, has fifteen hundred employees in Detroit, and you know it's a it's a you know going to be a, a really great uh, returner in terms of uh, investment uh, returns, but also is one of the companies that is really highlighting what's possible in these rise of the rest cities, and certainly highlighting what's possible in Detroit, which is a city that has really, you know, kind of struggled for you know, a long period of time. We've also seen as we've done these tours, the benefit of what we write about in the book as tentpole companies that have success in a particular city. And that then creates momentum. The alumni of those companies go on to start new companies or invest in some, some new companies. And it creates sort of that network effect, increasing returns kind of, you know, dynamic. You know, one of the ones I profile, in the book is Indianapolis, where this company, Exact Target, got acquired by Salesforce. And Salesforce now has 2,000 employees in Indianapolis, their second largest office outside of San Francisco itself. But there are dozens of other companies that have started because of that the success of Exact Target as a as a as a tentpole company. And so that's that's what's so encouraging about this. And that's why I ultimately decided to write the book. There, there are lots of these examples of companies, lots of these examples of of, uh, of cities. In fact, the hardest thing about writing the book was figuring out how to narrow it down. We didn't want it to be too long. We wanted it to be a couple hundred pages. So we could have kept going. There are a lot, I think we profiled about 30 cities, about 40 companies. We could have kept going. We just knew that at some point there was diminishing returns and we had to, had to stop and just focus on some of the, you know, some of the best stories. Totally. I'm sitting here in Miami. And so when I was reading that chapter, I was like, oh, I know, I know this person, I know this person, I know this person. Right. So that was like really cool to see. Um, Steve, you also mentioned in, that 75% of venture capital, I think in the last decade, correct me if I'm wrong, was going right. to three places. So Silicon, Silicon Valley, California, um, New York, and I think Massachusetts being the third one. Right. Boston would make sense. Can you talk to me about that trend? Because you're someone who built, you co-founded AOL, 
I think in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. Um, correct. Yes. Correct. Okay, so you've experienced building a tech giant, like one of the most iconic uh, tech companies outside of Silicon Valley. Talk to me about the that trend of why so much was going to those three places. Well, some of it's historical. Venture capital is, is really not a, uh, it's only been around like a half a century. It's not that, you know, it's only, it's fairly recent in the grand, you know, scheme, scheme of things. It started in New York, then there's some in Boston, some in San Francisco, and, you know, momentum begets momentum and, and uh, you know, kept building on that. And, and that's why it is what it is and has been this way for, for some period of time. But you know, the story of AOL and actually the story of a lot of the companies in sort of the early days of the internet, the first wave of, of the internet, and it was more regionally distributed. We were, as you mentioned, in, in Northern Virginia, outside of uh, DC, really hard to get going because there really was no venture capital here. So we had to raise money from other other places. It was hard because mostly big companies, government contracts with other big companies here at the time. And most of them were reluctant to leave a big company. And it's what seemed like a safe job to join our little, little company, which seemed like a risky proposition, hard to get attention. So it was harder. I think that probably is partly what drives my my passion about supporting these rise of the rest entrepreneurs. I think I have an empathy for the the challenges they have having had that own my own experience over over three decades ago. But as I said, it wasn't just AOL in Northern Virginia. Some of the other early pioneering companies like CompuServe was in Columbus, Ohio. The the communications modem company Hayes was in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, Sprint, the communications company, was in you know, you know, Kansas City. Uh, IBM's PC operations were in Boca Raton, Florida. Gateway was in you know, another computer company was in you know South Dakota. Microsoft actually started in Albuquerque before moving to Seattle because you know Bill Gates and Paul Allen kind of wanted to go home. They're both from uh, Seattle, so it was more regionally distributed in the in the 80s and even some of the 90s. It's just in the last couple of decades when it shifted from building the internet, kind of building the on ramps to the internet, the servers and so forth. Uh, to, to building software and apps on top of the internet. That's when, you know, Silicon Valley really drove to, you know, its current prominence, indeed, some would argue dominance. Uh, I think in this next chapter, this next couple of decades, because uh, some of the industries up for grabs, things like healthcare and food and financial services, I can go, go down the list. Uh, some of the, the expertise you need, some of the partners you need are in the middle of the country. I think that will advantage some of the entrepreneurs in those cities if, we can get them the capital they need if we can get them the talent they need if we can get them the the attention they need within their communities and more broadly so that's why we're we're on this mission with uh, with rise of the rest mm -hmm. do you do you think we've seen peak silicon valley yeah I, I i do i think probably three years ago or so was sort of the the peak which doesn't mean it's going to be in, in free fall i think silicon valley 10 20 years from now still will be the leader of the pack not just within this country but around the world there are a lot of great things about silicon valley but i think the the some of the dynamics that we're building pre-pandemic because we've been doing this as you said for for uh, for a decade but certainly because of the pandemic that was kind of an unlock including around talent there are a bunch of people who did decide to move to someplace else uh, and once it may, maybe they thought they'd be there for a month or two, but some decided to stay and generally continue to work for the company they were working for, just doing it remotely. Uh, but as they were in those communities, I've heard this story you know, dozens of times now, they found there was things happening there that they weren't aware of. And a lot of them decided to leave the company they were working for remotely and join a company that was local, or in some cases even start a company in in a, in a particular city. So that unlock, I think, has been very helpful on, on in terms of this. And the other unlock, uh, is, again, because of the you know, pandemic, I hate to say these are you know positives from the pandemic, but if you are looking for a silver lining, what's been a tragic you know kind of you know two three years, it, it is what's happening around the, the rise of the rest. The other unlock is venture capital. You know, three years ago, people said, well, if you want to, you know, kind of, you know, we, you want us to invest, you have to come to our office and somewhere usually in Silicon Valley and and pitch us. And often they would only invest in companies that then either located there or were willing to move there. Now, because of, of the pandemic, people, venture capitalists were more open to pitch meetings by Zoom. And if you're open to meetings by Zoom, why not talk to entrepreneurs in other places? And a lot of them did. And that led to investments for a lot of them in cities they previously hadn't invested in. And I think that also creates a, a dynamic that you know that will will be positive as, as we head into the next, you know, five or 10 years. So 
uh, generally, I think I think things are well positioned now for this acceleration. You know, the, the, the Silicon Valley will, be, will still be the leader, but less less dominant. Many other cities, dozens of cities, as I write about in the book, will will rise up, and I think that's positive. Gives entrepreneurs more flexibility in terms of where they want to start and where they want to scale, and also gives more people more flexibility in terms of deciding where they want to live while still having a, a great you know, career path. And the process, we really can help strengthen, renew some of these these cities, some of these uh, communities. And I think that also in the long run, you know, can also help strengthen our country, which is why going back to your very in, uh, early introduction, why I do think this is a very optimistic story. Yeah, I think, um, and I'm going to get you to like refresh it for folks, but like the name, the rise of the rest, it's not like, the, it's not, not the fall of Silicon Valley. It's the kind right. of everyone else lifting up and um, you and I in the past have talked about like the brain drain that had been happening and the boomerang effect. And I right. want to bring up your first book, um, The Third Wave, an entrepreneur's vision for the, of the future. I read it a couple of years ago before I first interviewed you. Um, and the, I would love for you to kind of share, because I think what's played out here um, was this acceleration of the third wave that you had written about. Maybe it was faster than you had even expected. But can you kind of share for folks um, the thesis of the third wave and how that ties into what we've seen transpire. Yeah, when I wrote that book, which I think was about six years ago now, uh, I decided to write. It was the only book I had written. I'd resisted writing books before because I am always interested in kind of the future, what's going to happen next. But I realized that some of what's going to happen next would would could learn from some of the things that happened earlier, and particularly earlier from that early first wave of the internet I talked about building the the on-ramp because there, you know, it wasn't just the technology you're building, it was the partnerships you needed to form to get traction. We had over 200 partners with uh, with AOL that, that really enable us to, to grow rapidly. We couldn't have done that without those, you know, partnerships. And I also recognize that policy was critically important in that first era, that first wave, because even when we started AOL in 1985, and people don't have trouble believing this, but it was still illegal for consumers or businesses to even be on the internet because it was basically funded by the government at the time, restricted to government agencies and educational institutions, universities, and so forth. Uh, and so when we were getting started, we really had to evangelize the commercialization of the internet, set the rules of the road when the internet finally was uh, available to, to consumers and and businesses so that policy really played a central role in making the internet even even possible and those partnership policy uh, concepts uh, which were so important in the 80s and 90s were less important in the last you know couple of decades when it really was more about software and apps and and so forth but i think in this third way which is to me when the internet meets the real world that's when partnerships and policy will become more important again and the final one which ties in with this this new book on rise rest place will become more important again it will be more distributed in terms of the innovation uh, e economy so in some ways what i was writing about uh, six years ago with the, with the third wave was saying we're going to kind of go back to where we were 30 years ago some of the key principles around the need for partnerships the importance of engaging on policy and the recognition of the role of of place are going to become important again. And over the last six years, that's certainly proven to be the case. And as I said earlier, the pandemic has definitely been a, an accelerant, a tipping point. Yeah. Um, when you're just talking about your time at AOL, one of the things that was written that struck me was um, just 3% of people were online. So this is 1985, just 3% of yeah. people were online for an average of just one hour a week. I had Correct. no idea. It was early. It was early. It was early. <laughs> It was so very early. We but... said we we said we wanted to get America online. We were we were serious. It was you... it was we it was it was and it frankly was a struggle for for a decade. It really took us a decade before we finally broke through. Most people were skeptical that that the most normal people would ever want to get on the internet. It's people that thought it would be a, more of a computer hobbyist kind of niche thing, not a mainstream thing. It took us a decade to convince people otherwise. And I feel a little bit even when I was writing this 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 new book, a little bit of deja vu all over again, because when I first started talking about the rise of the rest, the idea of, of what we've been you know, covering in terms of entrepreneurs and, and cities, you know, kind of you know, in this next you know, next chapter, 10 years ago, when we first did that, or when we started our first bus tours, I saw the same skepticism in people's eyes that I saw 30 plus years ago in those early days of the internet. And I feel also that even though it's taken us a, a decade to really kind of get traction, I think now people are starting to realize that, that something is brewing out there, something's happening out there, and it likely will accelerate in, 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 this, in this next decade. So, 
here we go again. And, you know, first decade is kind of a struggle to get people to believe. Second decade is when things really, really accelerate. I think that's going to happen with with uh, with rise of the rest. And hopefully, this book is a a catalyst it might inspire other people to start companies in these cities. Might inspire other investors to back the entrepreneurs in these in these cities, and and it could result in in more innovation happening. Uh, and it happening in a much more dispersed way, which I think is great for those cities and also great for the country. Yeah. I like what you just said about how it was you almost sensed that deja vu and the kind of same skepticism you felt back in the 80s building um AOL. You can see in people's eyes. It's yeah. like, it's like oh, it, that sounds nice, but that's not going to happen. How do you deal, like, let me ask you this. Like, how do you deal with skepticism or people who might not believe? Like, I feel like this might be a good thing for entrepreneurs, too, to understand, like, overcoming the skeptics or not letting that deter you. How do you feel? Yeah, for, for me, uh, maybe there's a, a, a stubborn streak or something. But when, when people say something can't be done, uh, it just kind of, for me, kind of redoubles my commitment to get it done, prove them wrong in, in part. Uh, and so I do think that's a, a trait of a lot of entrepreneurs that, you know, I mean, they, they really believe in, 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 in their idea and they're really, you know, they're passionate about it. They have a team that's passionate about it. They figure out a strategy to, to, to try to, you know, navigate through, you know, some you know these chop, choppy early waters. Uh, you know, a lot of them do have that sense of, I'm going to stick with it. I really do believe I get it that most people don't share my my belief, I get it that people are, are skeptical. This is true with most entrepreneurs and most startups. A lot of people, including their family and friends, people that love them are kind of skeptical that it's actually going to work. Uh, but the, the great entrepreneurs kind of power through. And of course, that you, know, you always need to be listening. You always need to getting sense from the market. Sometimes you have to make adjustments and, and, and it's a stubbornness to always be you know, the prevailing dynamic sometimes it does make sense to take a step back and, and reassess but for me whether it's those early days of, of the internet when there were a lot of skeptics or a, you know a decade or so ago when we started the efforts around rise of rest i was pretty confident that eventually the internet would rise eventually these other cities would would arise and so i just kept trying to do what we could to accelerate you know getting there getting kind of to the promised land if if, if you will uh, and eventually you start seeing some of that skepticism, you know, diminish people getting a little bit more curious. And then after curiosity comes, you know, engagement and commitment. And we're starting to move into that phase, I think, with with Rise Rest, just based on tracking where people are are moving and, and new companies starting and venture capital you know, flowing and, and jobs being being created. Yeah. Um, how many how many investments have you made with the Rise of the Rest funds? Well, we have three funds at, at Revolution, Revolution Growth Fund, Revolution Ventures, and the Rise of Risk Seed Fund, specifically around the Rise of Risk Seed Fund. We've done, we've done you know, two funds that total about $300 million of, of capital there, but we've made about 200 investments in about 100 cities. And our strategy is initially, uh, we, we, it's a kind of a land and expand strategy. Initially, we make a, a, a relatively modest investment, usually a few hundred thousand dollars, alongside in partnership with regional venture capital investors. We want them to take the lead in their own you know, city. They take the lead in pricing the deal. They take the lead in joining the board, things like that. And then we participate as part of that round and then connect all these entrepreneurs into a Rise of the Rest network and connect the venture investors we're co-investing in also into this Rise of the Rest network. So it creates a little of that network density that does make uh, Silicon Valley so special. And then we watch, obviously, like, like any good investors would do, we watch which companies are developing. We work with them to try to be helpful in any way we can. And the ones that are showing the most promise, we double down on with a larger expand investment. So that's been the uh, the, the strategy yeah, with with the Rise of Rest Seed Fund. That makes sense. Yeah, I was looking on the page and there were like some incredibly like um, you know, names that I, I recognize that I didn't realize that you all had backed. So it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, and when you do these investments, you mentioned kind of partnering regionally. And like, I know, like, you know, here in Miami, we have like more regional uh, venture funds. And over the years, have you seen more of the kind of traditional, you know, Sand Hill Road firms kind of come in? And how, how have you kind of seen that evolve? Yeah, two things have, have happened, which both of them have been super helpful. The first is we did this a joint report with Rise of the Rest and PitchBook uh, late last year. And one of the conclusions from that is in the last decade, 1,400 new 
venture firms have started in rise of the rest city, you know, outside of San Francisco, outside of New York, out, out, outside of Boston, 1400. So there are a lot more firms in, in cities all across the country than existed just 10 years ago. That's super helpful, particularly in the early stage and getting these companies going. And the second thing we've seen, and, and, and you referenced it, is over the last decade, more of the coastal firms have started paying attention to what's happening in, in other parts of the country. And even more, going back to what we talked about earlier, started doing that during the during the pandemic. So we're seeing more capital at the local level because of these these new funds have started and more of the coastal capital, if you will, looking inward to other parts of, of the country. And that's why I'm so optimistic about this this next uh, next phase for, for Rise of the Rest. Yeah. When you evaluate entrepreneurs, you kind of shared your a bit of your framework and like your criteria. Um, and it's three questions. Can you share it with the folks who are listening? And then you know, what do you typically look for? Like, what is it that catches your attention when you get the answers to those questions? Well, first of all, it, because we have these different strategies at, at Revolution, the kind of early seed, a little bit later venture, and then the later still kind of growth, you know, two years, a few years before the companies are ready to go public. The way we think about investing and even the way we underwrite the investments are a little bit different. Some of the later stage growth investments we make, companies like DraftKings and Clear and, and Sweetgreen and Big Commerce and, and many others. Those, by the time we're investing, are are pretty significant businesses, and they're raising additional capital to accelerate their growth, grab more market share. When we're looking at the venture investments, and you know, they're usually a Series A kind of a investment. There's usually a, a clarity regarding the product market fit. The team is generally you know pretty well uh, assembled, and and so they they're raising that capital really to kind of take their company to the next level. At this earliest stage, the the seed stage, it's really. You know, some some basic questions around what are they really trying to do? What are they trying to build? Why is that important? Why is now the right time to, to launch that? Why is the city that they're located in a good place to launch that? How are they going to take that idea and scale it in terms of the team they build around it? How are they going to establish where appropriate partnerships uh, around it? So it's still early. It's it's still more uh, you know, not necessarily just an idea on a napkin. There's you know, there's more to it than that. But it's still in the process of, of being formed. So those are some of the the questions we're asking at the at the at the at earliest level. Ultimately, it comes down to the idea: is it a you know a big idea that has the potential to address a big um, opportunity in, in in the market? Have a we call in the investor world you know TAM total addressable market is is it is it important and do they have not just the entrepreneur but do they have a team around them that really can execute against the that idea at the at the core that it really at that earliest stage it's it really comes down to the idea and, and the team. We like that. Um, you also mentioned at the top of the conversation um, about startups being like really the job creators and the engine of kind of job growth, which might be surprising to some people. They might think it's like, you know, the more established, big uh, firms with thousands of employees or even, you know, the small businesses of America. Was that surprising to you to learn that it's startups that fuel job growth? Yeah. Now, and to be clear, small business is very important and big business is very important. As a sector, for example, in the small business sector accounts for a lot of jobs. It doesn't, as a sector, account for a lot of job growth. And the reason is, you know, take the restaurant industry, for example. If one restaurant goes out of business, it probably is going to be replaced by another restaurant. It's probably going to employ about the same number of people. So you know, some businesses are you know, starting, others are, are, are going away. But as a sector, it, while very, very important, it doesn't create net jobs as a sector. And similarly on the big companies, some companies are are growing rapidly, adding a lot of jobs. Some are in decline. You, know, you take the retailing sector, the dominant companies a few decades ago were things like uh, you know Kmart and Sears, which have been in decline. So new companies have emerged. You know Amazon and others that have, that have filled that that uh, you know that the vacuum. So, so there's definitely some companies that are big companies, Fortune 500 companies that are growing, creating a lot of jobs. But there's also many that are declining. Half of the Fortune 500 turns over every 25 years, just to put some you know statistics around it. So as a sector, it also is important, but if you add it all up and then the, you know, the company's growing and the company's declining, it doesn't create a lot of net new jobs. So that's why the new companies, these startups, companies under five years old uh, are so important. And that was a surprise to me. I, I kind of had a sense that they were important, but I didn't realize how important they are, nor did I realize, as I said earlier, how disadvantaged the, the companies are, the entrepreneurs are in most parts of the country because venture capital is something that not every company wants or needs. Some are able to bootstrap and, and so forth. But the companies that have been most successful 
terms of creating the most jobs, creating the more most in terms of economic value, valuation, things like that, have generally gotten venture capital. So we have to recognize that if the capital is limited to a few places, uh, that's going to limit the ability for these new companies to start in other parts of the country, which will limit the job growth, economic vitality in those you know, places and then lead some people there to feel, as I said earlier, left out and left behind. So yeah. that's what when I realized that, that when the importance of new companies and the distribution of venture capital, I said, this is both a problem we need to solve, but also an opportunity we need to seize. And that's when we launched Rise of the Rest. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, especially when the capital is concentrated to a few places and folks feel left out and left behind. And, you know, as someone who's traveled across America for years now, and really on the ground traveling too, including not just on the Rise of the Rest bus tours. I know you've also done RV um, trips yeah. as well. Um, so you really get to experience the country. And I guess my wife you know, and I love to hit the road by RV. You know, about three years ago, I think it was uh, maybe a little over three years ago, we did a cross country and back uh, trip that took us a little over a month. Uh, stopping at different place uh, all you know each each night, and as you said, it's a great way to see America and get a, you know, meet people that, that you might not otherwise meet, get perspectives you might not otherwise get. So some of it is, you know, the, 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 what we do on, with Rise of Rest and more broadly revolution, sometimes by bus, often obviously traveling to different cities, even the last month because this new book came out and I've been, been doing book tour. I've been in more than a dozen different different cities. So sometimes I fly in, sometimes I, I, I drive in by bus, but personally, I also like to hit the road and, and I, I've, I've always been a big believer in the Americana road trips, including lately, you know, last few years by RV. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, talking to people and um, I, I want to ask you this because you, you did write about it in the book. And why do you think America is so divided right now or feels very divided? Why do you think that is? It's complicated. I think there are a lot of factors and there are folks, you know, that are smarter about it than, than, than I am. Uh, but one factor that, I, that I, I do think is a key part of it, not the only part, but a key part of it, is, which is the, the piece of it that I'm obviously trying to address, is there is a big opportunity gap. There are definitely some people in some places that are doing really well, uh, feeling great about things. And a lot of people, indeed most people in most places, are, are you know, angry and, and, and feel disrespected and, and don't feel like they have opportunity. There was a study by Pew a few years ago. It was really quite sobering that about 70% of Americans wake up in the morning anxious about the future, worried about the future, fearful about the future in terms of how it's going to impact them, their families, and, and their communities. And some of that is because of the march of technology. Some of the things we celebrate in terms of disruption do result in job loss. The, the, as we have you know, more robots and factories, for example, some people have lost their their jobs. So they're you know they're, they're, they see that happening in you know in in their own lives and and start getting upset about it. Uh, and I don't think you can or should try to slow that march of progress. You know, 100 years ago, 90% of us worked on farms. Now it's less than two percent. And the reason is technology made it easier to grow more fo- food with fewer people, which is actually a good thing if you're trying to feed the world, uh, but not a good thing in terms of, uh, of displacing jobs. Thankfully, then a century ago, more than a century ago now, uh, we were able to move people from farms to factories, pivot from the agricultural revolution to the industrial revolution, and that worked reasonably well. Uh, we've been less successful in, in moving from the industrial revolution to the technology revolution, the digital revolution. And I think the place to focus there goes back to the, the the book is backing more new companies in cities all across the country. Some of which will fail because obviously startups can be can be risky, and some will fail. But some could end up being those big Fortune 500 companies of tomorrow and create jobs in these communities where they've only seen job loss and kind of all, uh, some loss of hope, even in some cases. Despair. One of the great examples I write about in the book is a company in eastern Kentucky, coal country, Appalachia, which has had a tough run of it for several several decades. Uh, this company, App Harvest, just started five, six years ago. Now has over 500 jobs in coal country. And they built the largest indoor greenhouse in, in the country. It uses 90% less water, so it's good for the environment. 70% of the U.S. population is within a 24-hour drive, so it's good in terms of managing supply chains. But it's also created a lot of you know, jobs in, in, in this area outside of uh, Lexington, Kentucky. We just need more of those examples. And part of the reason to write the book is I've had the opportunity to have a 
front row seat, seat literally on a, on a bus, seeing all parts of America meeting hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs visiting dozens and dozens of cities. And I wanted to share those stories because it gives people a little bit more hope, whether they're in these communities or thinking more broadly about some of these divides in the country. Yeah. And you talked earlier about, um, and I like the app harvest example, and I think they're publicly traded now um, as well. Right. And you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, really helping get capital and talent to these places. And um, what are some other areas? Because it, it can't just be, VC can't solve it alone. Like what else is needed? Like what would help you all kind of further this? Is it, do you need help from the government? Like what, what works and what is needed? Where are the gaps that can be filled? Well, the capital piece is important. The, the talent piece is important. Kind of, as you talked about before, slowing the brain drain, creating a boomerang. Collaboration within the communities is important. So getting people in different cities working together in a more integrated way to support entrepreneurs, it's very, very important. But there are also things to do, in, including governments, whether it be at a state level or at a, at a more of a, a federal level. And some states, for example, have put investment incentives in, in place around angels, tax credits, things like that, that have been uh, been been helpful. A lot of people, including in Miami, the mayor there has made a big focus on, on you know, being a champion for startups, trying to be a magnet for capital, a magnet for talent. So there is a role for people at that at that city level as well as some incentives at the, at, the, at the state level. And at the national level, I think some of this goes back to trying to make sure the government's setting the table and, and creating the right dynamics so entrepreneurship can flourish and it can flourish everywhere. And there are actually some encouraging things that have done happened just in the last few months. Congress passed the Chips and Science Act, which reshored some semiconductors, which I think is strategically valuable and helpful to areas like Columbus, Ohio, where Intel is now building a big, uh, big plant. Uh, and also it, it funded uh, or authorized $10 billion uh, for the funding of regional hubs, which I think would be very helpful to this effort around rise of rest. The Inflation Reduction Act that passed a couple of months ago, uh, funding a significant uh, investment, new investment in climate technologies with a goal towards sustainability, but also that will kickstart, just as the internet did a half century ago, some investments in that sector that might not otherwise have happened. So there is a role for government to play at, whether it be at the federal level or state or, or local level. But ultimately, I think it comes down to the entrepreneurs with the ideas willing to take the risk of starting companies and the investors willing to back those those those, those companies and the, you know, the community support those in, the, both the entrepreneurs and the investors can get in these rising startup cities. Yeah. How about the talent side? Because if you asked me 10 years ago if I would ever be in Miami and my, my other ambitions get back to Raleigh, North Carolina, I went to Chapel Hill, so I know the area quite well. If you asked me 10 years ago, would I leave New York City and go anywhere else? I would have said no way. But obviously the pandemic changed things. How do way. you get the talent side of things to kind of get moving? Like, you know, what? how do you bring them back to these communities if they've left? Well, it's it, it, you're a good example. I've, I've, I've talked to dozens of other people that have made the move, and, and some did it pre-pandemic. A lot of it did it in the last you know three years, and it was it kind of they kind of felt like they wanted to be someplace else, but they didn't feel like they could you know practically leave where they are because that's sort of where that particular industry was was centered. Whether it's you know media and finance in New York City, or or obviously you know technology in, in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily their first choice. Maybe they even were struggling a little bit with some of the challenges in some of these big superstar cities, cost of living, housing issues, crime issues, other other kinds of things. But they kind of felt like they had to be there. And what's changed is they don't feel like they have to be there. They might choose to be there, and many will still choose to be there, but they don't have to be there. We, that, that's why this rise of rest is, is so important. And once people realize that, then they start opening their minds to the idea of being in some other place. So maybe as you did leaving from New York to go to Miami and saying, well, maybe there's a path to, you know, go to back to the, you know, the Raleigh kind of uh, Durham area, which is, as you know, a, a thriving startup ecosystem. So that is an example of the journey people are taking that left someplace because you felt like the only practical way you could build a, a, a great career was to be in a city like uh, New York, but after a while and, and maybe you know, ex accelerated by the pandemic, you said, come to think of it, maybe I can do that from from other places. I've been hearing these stories for, for years. I've been hearing a lot more in, in the last few weeks as I've been traveling around the country on, the, on this book tour. This is not just a few people doing it. It's a much broader dynamic. And I think it bodes well for this, 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 this next, next you know, 10 or 15 years where people at least have the flexibility to decide 
where they live and where they work and even how they live and, and how they work. And, and I think that's a positive for people in their lives. And it's possible for possible you know, positive for entrepreneurs and startups and a big positive for a lot of these cities, which are now seeing after you know many, many decades of brain drain, seeing more of this boomerang happening. Yeah, the boomerang. And I got to say, like, your book is such a great illustration of this you know, the thesis that you put forth in the third wave really play out and like how that has been accelerating and really, you know, you know, gives some great stories uh, of entrepreneurial success across the country. And um, one of the things I want to bring up in the book, and I'll, I'll quote the passage to you, and I want to get you to react to it and weigh in a bit further. But you wrote, um, people around the world are still largely envious and respectful of America. But that admiration is not a birthright. Trust must be earned continually. If we lose our way, it probably won't be because of a rising power like China undermines us, although that is a risk, of course. More likely, it will be because we undermine ourselves. How do you think of that risk of America undermining itself? And what are those kind of threats to us undermining ourselves? Well, I think it's a real risk. I, I, I'm optimistic. I believe America can continue to be the leader of the free world. America can continue to have the you know, leading innovation economy. But I recognize, that, as I wrote, it's not guaranteed. It's not a, not a birthright. That, that the, the world's woken up to the fact that a key part of the American story, the, the, the secret sauce, if you will, it's, it's really power of the American story, is what's happening around innovation, entrepreneurship, that's pioneering spirit, the, the, you know, the, the system around backing, taking risk of, of, of companies. That's what's led us from 250 years ago, just being a startup nation that most people around the world thought would fail, to now being kind of the, the leader of the pack. And you know, so we need to recognize how we got to now and not be cocky or complacent, assuming it will continue to be that way, because just looking at the data there, about 25 years ago, over 90% of venture capital globally was invested in the United States. Now it's less than 50%. So more capital is backing you know, more companies and more, more countries around the world. Uh, and that's sort of inevitable, but also should be a, a wake-up call that we need to double down and make sure we continue to be the, the leader. And a lot of it ties in with Rise the Rest, you know, kind of trying to make sure we have a more inclusive innovation economy. We are backing more people in more places, but there's some other policy issues, including things around immigration reform. So we continue to be a magnet for talent. Historically, we've been great at getting people to want to come here and start here and build here. And, and, and it's created tons of jobs. 40% of the Fortune 500 companies are either immigrants or children of immigrants. But in the last decade or so, it has become harder to come here. It has become harder to stay here. And I think that's a real threat in terms of our innovation economy. So there's a bunch of things we need to do within the country. And there's also a bunch of things we need to do to make sure our, our influence around the world and the desire of people to, to join us and be part of building the next chapter of the American story you know, continues to be strong. Yeah, you you highlight immigration in, in the book and even like highlighting you know, some of the cities that have really benefited from immigration and, um, you know, the number of companies that have been built because of um, immigration. And yet policy in the last decade is, you know, kind of languished on the issue. What would what would be smart immigration policy from your perspective and what could really help move the needle here? Well, it's complicated. There are many facets of, of immigration policy, partly why that's been difficult to get anything done. I testified in, in the Senate, I wrote about this in the book about nine years ago around the need for immigration reform, making some of the points I, I just, just made. Uh, you know, there was interest in getting that done, but we couldn't quite build the bipartisan coalition necessary, in part because it was so complicated, not just about this high-skilled immigration, luring people to come here that might be entrepreneurs and build, you know, build the companies of the future, the next generation of, of jobs in America. There are also issues around border security, the issues around the dreamers. And so it, it is complicated and people feel strongly about lots of different issues. But in terms of this issue of innovation, entrepreneurship specifically, we came close this this summer. There was a, as part of that Chips and Science Act, there was a piece of it, you know, focused on the startup visa that would have been you know, a helpful step in, in, in terms of the right direction of making it easier for people to come here and, and build here that ended up not getting included in the final legislation. But hopefully it is something that can get done in, in this next session of, of, of Congress. Yeah. I want to talk a bit more about you because I think the first book, it was a little bit of a memoir um, and a manifesto at the same time. And, um, you know, just a bit about your background. Like you grew up 
in Hawaii. You went to Williams College and you took a computer class and you hated it. And I think you got a bad grade, which you know what? There's hope for everybody else out there, you know, because you can go in and build an iconic internet company. Talk to me about your evolution in tech and why you still liked it even after not doing so great. Um, in a, in well, in fairness, I've never been a, an engineer. I've never been a coder. I've never been something I you know, had a particular aptitude at. And I did learn that when I was in college, but I did take a, a, a computer 101 course. This is in the late 70s, which was still the the era. I hate to date myself like this, but it's true. The era of punch cards. So you'd write some program and, and you know, basically wait for your, your cards to go, go through the computer and, and get the result back, which for me often was, oops, didn't get that right. I have to have to, you know, do it again. Uh, and so it was, it was frustrating. I, it was something I wasn't, you know, wasn't particularly good at, but probably inspired me a little bit when we were getting started with the AOL in those early days in the, in the eighties, how do you make it a little more accessible? How do you make this internet, which for a lot of people was confusing and, and even threatening how do you make it easy to use how do you make it fun how do you make it affordable and that really was what driving uh, a, a success of aol particularly as things grew and accelerated in the in the 1990s so i think that early experience struggling uh, with it i kind of recognized that that other people would struggle you know i remember the first time i bought a personal computer the first time i plugged in a communication modem the first time i loaded up communication software it was really hard and expensive to you know to do that uh, and I realized most people wouldn't do that. So how do you make it simpler? How do you build that modem capability into the computer? How do you make the software simpler and integrate it? So when you turn on the computer, it, it you know, it pops up. I mean, all the ways to make it more accessible and more, uh, more people has been the, was the focus then. And frankly, it's sort of what we're doing with Rise of the Rest. I, I reflected on this when I was writing the book, but that, uh, it, you know, how do you, Essentially, what I loved about the the early days of the internet was the idea was this level of playing field. So everybody had access to information, education, commerce, et cetera. And the focus now is essentially leveling the playing field, but it's more around opportunities. So everybody has the shot of, they want to, a shot of building a company, a shot the American dream, and more people in more parts of the country can benefit from from innovation and entrepreneurship as opposed to feeling kind of kind of left out. So maybe I'm only good at one thing, which is kind of, you know, focusing on these, these challenges that take a couple of decades to, to, to do and, and to bring a kind of a network partnership uh, uh, approach to it. And with a, with a desire to kind of level the playing field, make the world a little bit, uh, you know, level or a little fairer. Yeah. You know, there's so much nostalgia about AOL because I remember like the dial up um, and like the, you got mail and there's kind of, it was magical and like having my, my, my instant messenger, such a fun time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some folks might not remember it, but it was, you know, that was kind I, of like I a- still remember. I think it was one fun time. And, and one thing most people were annoyed by, which is that screeching modem sound when you're I, connecting. I always loved that to me. It was like cha-ching, cha-ching. The business is building. But, but uh, it was it was a great time. That's how you distinguish between like who's a millennial and who's a Gen Z. Like millennials, we all had the dial up. And it was like if your house had a second line, you were really cool. And we did not have a second line, but- Anyway, um, another. Go ahead. No, I was going to say it it reminds me. I probably should change my ringtone on my phone. So it's that modem dial up (laughs) screeching sound. That would be funny. It was a joyful noise. Um, This is kind of random, but kind of fun. You worked at Pizza Hut and you had the coolest title. You were the director of new pizza development at Pizza Hut in Kansas. So you've actually had jobs across the country because I think you also worked in Ohio for Procter & Gamble. And it might sound like a totally random question, but. You've traveled around the country. You've had a lot of pizzas. Like, what's your favorite pizza or the best combination or the weirdest combination you've ever had? Well, well first of all, I should say that probably is the best title I ever had when yeah. I was director of new pizza development pizza. I think it was 23, 24, something like that. And they did basically pay me to, you know, go around the country and eat pizza. It's crazy, but, but it's true because I was focused on... On, on trying to create the next, you know, expansions for the for for the menu, either different kinds of pizza or different even kind of products, and you know, and and we did a bunch of a bunch of both. And I realized that rather than sit in our headquarters in Wichita, Kansas, and try to dream up things, better to hit the road and learn firsthand what different people are were doing, and then figure out if any of those might make sense for uh, you know for for Pizza Hut. So back then, one of the things we were working on was delivery, which of course now is pretty commonplace, but back then was still just a more 
more of an idea, things like the, you know, the, you know, the pan pizza, things like that were some of the things that were being developed, uh, you know, back then. So in terms of my favorite pizza, I was still a fan of pizza. After, a couple of years after pizza, I think I was a little, uh, maybe had too much of it for that time I was there. So I needed to, to kind of back off. But then, then I, I, I remembered that I do love pizza. Uh, and I, I kind of, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty basic. If I had to pick one pizza, it would be pepperoni pizza. That's still my, my favorite, even though I love trying new things. It's iconic. I love it. Definitely the coolest like dream job for anybody but being 23. What an awesome job. Yes, exactly. And I liked how you just kind of tied some of the lessons too. Like y'all were doing new things like, you know, home delivery and things like that. And even when you're Procter and Gamble, they were trying new things like samples and how you tie that into your own business. And I guess to kind of round it out while we have you, if there's like that young entrepreneur building today and you, everyone gets this question, but like if they came to you for like some advice, like what are the top things that you would say to them? And especially like with kind of your bigger thesis on how the world's going to evolve and change. What are the things that you would say to that up and coming entrepreneur? Well, I probably would start by just asking a few questions to kind of get a sense of them and maybe some of their interests, passions and, and, and so forth. Cause you know, it, it's, Sort of these things tend to be a little more personal, but probably would then lean into if they do have a, you know, kind of this interest in building something, they do have a sense that they want to do something more, more entrepreneurial. I'd encourage them just to do it. Stop thinking about it and just do it. And to realize what ties in with the Rise of the Rest book, you now can do it pretty much anywhere. So don't feel like you, because you're not living in Silicon Valley, say you really don't have a, a shot at building you know, some some company that may have been true in the past. It's not true today and certainly will be less true in, in the future. So come up, you know, focus on some problem you see in your life that could turn into an opportunity, a better way to do something, whether it be in the healthcare sector or the you know, food sector. It doesn't really matter what the sector is. Find something that, that you think could be done better. And instead of just talking about it, go do something about it. And, you know, either start something or join somebody, uh, some other company that's doing something in, 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 in that space. So to me, it would be more of a bias towards action and, and not having excuses why you can't do it, that, that you're not in the right place or, or what have you. If, you. if you're really passionate about that idea, you really can build a team that shares that, that passion. You know, you can do it. Uh, or at least you can take a shot at it. Uh, and so I would just encourage people to, to take, take their shots. Yeah, I love that you have to shoot your shot. Steve, it's been a great conversation. I've really learned a lot from you and definitely feel more optimistic. I do want to pass it back to you, though, if you can, if you want to share like where folks can learn more. I don't know if y'all have upcoming tours or anything where they can pick up the book. Um, would love to just give you a few minutes to kind of, you know, like just say whatever you want to the audience listening. Oh, very kind. No, the, 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 the book just came out about a month ago, you know, uh, specifically focused on Rise of the Rest. So I, I would encourage people to to start there, either reading it or you know, the, the as you mentioned before, I did a you know wrote, read it myself for the audible version. Yeah, you know, I think that you know takes ten years of a lesson, ten years of experience, ten ten years of stories in terms of companies and and, and cities, and and tries to to share it more broadly. Our our revolution our investment firm Revolution dot com has a lot of information on each of our funds and the companies uh, that we've uh, backed and. We published a lot of books around and guides around things around Rise of the Rest, playbooks for different cities, things things like that. So those are some of the resources I would encourage people to take a look at. Or you know, follow me on Twitter. Steve Case is pretty easy to remember, uh, and I've been a pretty active Twitter user since the early days, like fifteen plus plus years ago, and and I'm still still a fan. Still a fan. I love it. Well, Steve Case, founder of AOL, CEO and chair of Revolution, and the author of the new book, The Rise of the Rest. It was so great having you on the show. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Julia. It's great to be with you. You too. Take care.